John chapter 18, um, we're going to make, uh, we're, we're just going to, we're going to make this morning a case and we're going to look at what happened leading up to when Christ was finally detained. And many times he had said his hour had come and now his hour has come. So let's read John chapter 18 verses 1 through 6. Here Judas betrayeth Christ and the band of officers come against him. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden in the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place, for Jesus oft times resorted thither with his disciples. Judas then, having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? Then answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also, which betrayed him, stood with them. As soon then as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Keep that in the back of your mind. Remember those three words that Christ said. We're going to look at that towards the end of the class. and We're leading up to that. I want to ask a question this morning. How many of you have been driving up and down looking at churches? Do you ever look at church signs? We've talked about that before. There's some crazy ones out there, aren't there? There's some good ones, but there are some crazy ones. I noticed the pattern leading up to the Easter holiday this week. Has anybody seen any signs and seen anything interesting? Maybe we could put our heads together and uh, kind of uh, maybe agree or, or come up with the same, same phrases we've seen. Anybody notice anything interesting? I noticed something that actually, I never really noticed it before, but I'm sure it's been there. These churches call it, and they're inviting people to have a resurrection celebration. A celebration. I don't want to pick it apart, because that word does pop up in certain theological circles, but I think it really depends on what is the perspective of using the term celebration. See, I have a problem with memorial celebrations for funerals. I have a little bit of a problem with that. I don't, I'll go to them. I'm not going to you know, ever look down or talk about anybody that do that. But Pastor Olson said something to me years ago that's really stuck with me about the fact that when someone dies, if there's a pastor there at the funeral and... Uh, family is having their loved one laid out. He said that is one of the greatest times to give the gospel and have a message for the funeral service. But what happens today is there's like a disposal of the loved ones in any way people can do it, and then they have a memorial celebration kind of way down the road. And it turns out to be like a big party instead of a time of a pastor giving the gospel and feeding people with what they really need to know about death. Lisey. Sure, go ahead. Amen.
right? That's a good point. Right. That's right. Right. Exactly. So it says it's better to go into the house of mourning. That's that's like the perfect verse to apply to this. Out of just pulling that out, it's wonderful to have such knowledge of the Bible. You can just kind of blurt that out, but it's the truth. For the first time, I mean, I'm kind of like piggyback, piggybacking on this comment, and I think it's very important. For the first time in my, if you want to call it my tenure or whatever as an elder, I had to preach two funerals within two months in 2020, and I worked really hard pulling out the information, and I looked really kind of forensically at the story of Lazarus, and I had never really heard a message preached about Lazarus being raised from the dead, I thought that in and of itself was a celebration. Because if, if Christ has the power to bring a dead man out of a tomb, how can he not use that as an encouragement for a hurting body of people who are saying tem- temporarily goodbye to a loved one? Both of them were Christians, thank the Lord. I haven't had to preach someone who has a questionable, you know, whether, question whether they're saved or not. I try not to do that because I know what I deserve. But the bottom line is, is there was a body at both funerals. People were hurting. It had just happened. They were taking it real serious. And at that point, being able to give them the gospel and talk to them about Jesus Christ, I thought was the ultimate. But then I've been to celebrations where what happens is, and I'm going, this is what I'm going to with this resurrection celebration thing now. I've gone to celebrations where the person dies, and then it's months later, they have the celebration, and everybody's just about pretty much over it, you know? And they're goofing around, and the, two of the celebrations, the whole celebration is about the person. It's pictures, it's all this fun and games and partying and stuff, but there's no gospel. That is the best time, one of the greatest times, to get it into people's heads and in their hearts when they're hurting. You need Jesus Christ. And because it's not only a sermon, it's a warning. And what's more important than that? It's worship. I love the old English translation of worship. It's worth-ship. W-O-R-T-H-S-H-I-P. Worth-ship. Christ is worthy. He's worthy of our worth-ship, our worship. I love that. And when I'm bothering, I was, for, the, for those who just came in a few minutes ago, we're talking about the signs that are out there, and I've seen them, that they're calling this week the resurrection celebration. Here's what I don't like about it. I'm not downing it. I'm not trying to say, you know, the world according to Tim, whatever. Resurrection, the resurrection celebration. The first thing it does is it basically takes the resurrection of Jesus Christ and it puts it on a calendar. One day, okay? One day we're going to think about the resurrection. Today is the day we're going to invite everybody into the community, see how many people we get in there. We're going to have a live celebration. We're going to give them food. A lot of them are having communion with these vast, big communions with all this big food and stuff and all this stuff. One day. So the celebration basically turns into like a holiday. It's like a one-day thing. And I was doing some research on resurrection. I was reading a lot of comments from pastors from old, some commentaries. 
The resurrection is every, if we're going to celebrate it, it's every day of our life that we're thankful that Christ did that for us. Lisi. Right. Right. We're supposed to live in victory. Amen. Yep. If Jesus Christ has conquered sin and death, then why are we and it's understandable we all go through things that are, you know, that are that are difficult, you know, and I tell you I've been beaten down enough so <laughs> Amen. the discouragement that can come. Right. That's right. Right. Yeah, and then, then you have the celebration. You have this one-time little three-word thing. that To us, it's foundational. It's everything to us as Christians. But all of a sudden, you see out of nowhere these little, these little messages on emails, and it could be Facebook or whatever. He is risen. He is risen. And people look at that, and they're like, wow, good, he's risen. That means I'm, I'm in good shape. And they don't feel like they have any obligation to that. I've seen that. He is risen. Well, here's the obligation. The demons know that he has risen. And you have the qualification of a demon if you know that he's risen. But do you believe in the gospel message that is woven all through that statement? Because he went to the cross, he died, and he rose again on the third day. That is the icing on the cake. We start all the way back in Genesis. Redemption started right there in the garden. I heard... I can tell you right now, I can count five different Christian people that I've talked to that says, we do not talk about creation and we do not talk about the cross in the same vein. We separate that. The cross and creation are different. Well, why was there a cross? If Adam, when Adam screwed up in the garden, which every one of us were there in our hearts, the way we sin, if you've ever sinned, you were there in the garden with Adam, basically. So if Adam sinned, there better be a cross because Christ is referred to, we talked Wednesday night about the Adamic covenant. The second Adam fixed what the first Adam messed up. <laughs> I mean, he really messed up. And the second Adam, perfect, our perfect Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, he comes in to what they're calling this week the resurrection celebration, the passion of the Christ, and all these things. He comes in. And he says three words. And don't ever forget these three words. I know he is risen. I love it. I love it. It's got to be every day. It shouldn't be just one day of the year. But there's three other words. And we're going to be looking at that. So we're here in John chapter 18, verses 1 through 6. We've read it. Christ is on the way to the cross. And he had just finished praying fervently to the point that he had a physical reaction to this prayer. What was the physical reaction? I'm not talking about spiritual. That was, that was big enough. What's the physical reaction Christ had to the prayer that he just finished? Here he is, now getting ready to be detained. Think about the logistics of where Christ came in, out of Jerusalem, and he went up on a mountain to pray. What happened to him physically when he prayed? Anybody remember? Lisa. Perfect. He was sweating blood. 
This has just happened. When this is when, what we just read, it says when verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, that means when he had just given his consolatory discourse and prayed and sweat blood, he went forth with, with his disciples over the brook Cedron. I'm going to show you the importance of this, and this is only scratch, almost blasphemous, and we can spend such a short amount of time because it's so incredible. But here, on the way to the cross, we see our, our precious Savior, he prayed for us. And if you haven't been at the Wednesday night prayer meetings, we've been going over that prayer for weeks and how the Lord prayed for those that the Lord had given into his hand, those that would be delivered into his hand and saved even after he was at the cross, thousands and thousands of years, and even past even our lifetimes, if, if the Lord doesn't come back, he's even praying for those a thousand years from now that are going to be saved in this prayer. And Christ knows the will of the Father. He prays for the will of the Father's. This was a perfect template for prayer as Christ finishes and he sweats blood. And I just want to give you, real quick, seven very important applications to the prayer that Christ had before he went to the cross. And that you can find, if you read John chapter 13 to 18, you will find the final prayer of Jesus Christ. That is his last will and testament. And here, the first thing he prays for is preservation in this beautiful prayer. He prays for the jubilation of the saints and the love that they have for Christ, the liberation from evil, sanctification, unification between the believers and Him, and an association by saying, being with me where I am, wanting His people, an association to be with Him in corporate worship. And the last one is His glorification. That's what He was praying about. And that's very, I'd love to go through that one day, but that's what He was praying about. Those are seven really important applications. So at this point, in these verses, Christ is betrayed. He is arrested. He surrenders himself to what? Well, he and his disciples exit that precious garden where he sweated tears of blood. I won't talk about it just for a second. What does it mean to sweat blood? Has anybody here ever sweat blood? I'm not talking about having like a little neck or you know, getting your head caught in a thorn bush or or whacking your head on a car, which I've done a thousand times, and stuff like that, you know, you got blood all over the place. I'm talking about out of nowhere, you're standing there, and you start to sweat from perspiring, and blood starts coming out your pores. It happens. It's very rare. It's very, yes, it's very deadly. It actually now can be caught, and people can be helped, but it doesn't, you have to be caught really quick if that starts happening. It's called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. That's what it's called. It's a very rare medical condition that causes you to ooze or sweat blood from your skin when you're not cut or injured. It's caused by extreme distress or fear, such as facing death, torture, or severe ongoing abuse. It's probably where the term sweating blood comes from, meaning a great effort. And it comes from, it, what it comes from is the fact that it's very deadly to sweat blood. Now, this is a medical, basically a medical statement or medical response to this condition, and it talks about fear, it talks about torture. If you read and you study, what do you think it was that made Christ sweat that blood? I believe it's when he looked into that cup of wrath, when he saw what was in that cup, metaphorically speaking. What did he see when he looked down into that cup? You know, Lisi.
Right, right. Right. I believe it's so many things. I think that's a big part of it. The, the only time in the course of absolute eternity past and eternity future that he's separated from the Father, what could be more horrible? He loves his people and he loves his creation so much that I believe part of it was also that he knew people were going to be burning in hell. And for them, that is what we have in our hearts to be concerned about if we're Christians, that others are going to burn in hell. That's what we do the work. Lisa. Right. Yeah. Right. Right, and I believe the consolation there is that I think as a Christian, I really do believe that Christ was not just confined to his humanity here on this earth. I believe that Christ not being, not sinning, he was also open to his deity and he could see things other people couldn't see. He had to, because if you take the words that he spoke through his ministry, he said things that not one, nobody could have said what he said, never, Lisa. Right. 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 That's right. 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 And that just scratches the surface because there's two, there's two phases of hell. Right now, the first phase is right, into, is right in, in effect right now. We, we, we will do a study on that eventually. The second phase is when everyone is cast, including Satan, into the lake of fire. I believe Christ could see that. I believe he could see that, and that was part of it. I believe that when you read in Isaiah 53, he was a man of sorrows, yet acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. He, you, don't, you don't read any verses about 
Well, Jesus got up today and he sat down with the disciples and they were sitting around laughing and joking around. You never hear that. You hear about how he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. You hear about the serious nature of how he spoke with authority because every time, I think in his humanity, I really believe this, every time he spoke in his humanity and he went out and he gave the gospel and he was openly rejected, I believe that was part of what was in that cup. I believe that was hard for him. He poured his heart out in his humanity so people would, would wrap their arms around the warning that he was given. And when they rejected it, what a horrible thing. Our Savior, it was up, up to our Savior to come here to give the gospel and to give his word. And when they spat on him and rejected him and even the disciples went away from him, it's no wonder he was a man of sorrows yet acquainted with grief. And now look what happens with Judas. You were going to say something, I'm sorry. Right. And, you know, the others were later seen and believing with the Christ, but John the Baptist was the one in the beginning that believed. And so I look at that and I think, it's no wonder that after he found that out, he went up to a desperate place to pray. Right. You know, he lost what would have been his best friend mm -hmm. at that point, too. So it was one sorrow after another. That's right. Yep. He took it all, and then he goes to the cross. Why does he ask John the Beloved to take care of Mary? His father had died also. And at the time, Christ was only in his early 30s. He had lost his father, his earthly father, very early. So there was a lot of pain, a lot of physical and emotional pain. And by the time Christ is here at this point, at this breaking point, everyone else breaks but him. He never breaks. You ever at the breaking point? You ever feel like you just are done? You feel like I've had it? Oh yeah, we've all we can open this up to a whole hour, hours of intervention to, to comfort each other. This is kind of what the Sunday school's about, really encouraging one another. But at this point, you would have thought he even said in his own words in John chapter seventeen, "You all are going to leave me." He even knew that, and he knew where they were going to go. We knew that because when he resurrected, he knew right where to go to find them, and then he walked through a wall to pull them out of the room. <laughs> It says the door was shut and he walked right through the wall and he saw the disciples all standing up there in Galilee in a room and he walked right through it to get them. How can you, I mean, I don't, I don't know how we could ever even begin in our physical human brains to, to be able to process what he knew. The things that he knew were just incredible. But anyway, we see here, Christ's hour had come. How many times did Christ say in his ministry, Mine hour has not come yet. And on many of those times, he was threatened with human physical death. And when he said his hour had not come, nobody could touch him. He, there was even, he would even walk through crowds who were trying to throw him at one point over a cliff. John chapter 7, 30. Can somebody find that? And then somebody else, John chapter 8, verse 30. And then somebody after that, John chapter 12, verse 23. I need to read some scripture here. So the first one, John 7.30 quickly, and then 8.30, and then 12.23. I want to back this up with Scripture, because this is just scratches the surface on how many times you brought this up. Mm -hmm. 
No man laid, thank you, Jim. No man laid hands on him. He couldn't touch him. And there were a lot of people standing there to grab him. John 8.30, who has that one? John, is that John 8.30? Can you read that again? I missed that one. Try 20. Thank you. Thank you. That's it. Thanks, Noah. Yep, that's it. Good. Thank you, Lisey. That's it. His hour had not come. Who has John 12, 23? That's it. <laughs> Christ is even the controller of the clock. He knew when his hour was going to be. He knew the day. He knew the time. He knew the location. It's all written in the Old Testament. Most of it, you go to Psalm 22. And you can see that this was all laid out and it was all building up to our redemption. So, I don't know why people are out there talking about how they're part of their own redemption. Then why did Christ do this? If people can save themselves by their own works, why, why, what, what is it that would be in us to glorify Christ and worship Him and love Him the way we do if we have something to do with our own salvation? Isn't it incredible today that a lot of churches believe that? A lot of people believe that? Lisa? That's right. Right. Yep. Satan said, You will not surely die. Exactly. Right. A glass darkly. Yeah. Mm hmm Right. Right. That's right. And there comes the wrath. There's where the wrath is brought in, and that's a very important parallelism to see that, is because today we're not taught that there's a wrath of God. Today out in mainstream media, God is your cosmic voyeur. Not voyeur, your cosmic bellhop. He's basically your celestial Santa Claus. 
And He does everything for you the way you want Him to do it. But without the knowledge of His wrath, you can never see the glory of His mercy. And it's there. And here is where it all comes to fruition. And Christ has the wrath of God poured out on Him so that we all don't have to endure it. We couldn't endure it anyway because our blood means nothing. As opposed to His blood, we can never be crucified and atone for someone else. He could. And so, we see this event. The hour had not come. Now it was here. And we see here, Judas also, which betrayed Him, knew the place, for Jesus oftentimes resorted thither with His disciples. It's great discussion. Thank you. I think we've built a very important foundational doctrinal Christian case showing the infallible proofs of Jesus Christ just already. We see that the hour had, had this hour come for Christ. This hour was here, and now he would be taken by the Roman soldiers. The hour had come. The captain of our salvation is now waging war against the enemy. Don't ever forget this. Christ was brought in. When you're this week... When you see all of these things about the resurrection and Easter and how Christ was taken in and you're going to see crosses on people's front yard, wonderful purple cloths and all this, you remember this. This was of Christ's choosing. He was not incarcerated and detained against His own will. He was taken because He had planned this. That's why He could say, my hour has come. He could never say that if He was taken like you see in some of these movies and these like detective shows where some guy does something wrong and all of a sudden they catch him in the act. He doesn't believe somebody's watching him through some microscope or through a window or something and they grab him. Oh, I can't believe they got me. No, Christ had this planned. He knew he was going to do this and he was not a criminal. His hour had come and what had happened was here was the fruition and the revelation of him completely waging war against Satan. When he went to the cross... Satan was doing everything he could to keep him from going to that cross because he had knowledge of what was going to come out of the results of that. He knew. Here the hour has come. The captain of our salvation is now waging war against the enemy. Every second of this trial of Christ's perfectly fulfilling prophecy, perfectly planned and impeccably carried out with all the play and everything going on around, what was playing out fell right into the hands of Christ. He had this all completely worked out. Hebrews chapter 2.10 says, For it became Him, for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. You see how important this is. Here we are seeing the office. Christ is transferring the three offices. What's the three offices of Christ? Thank you. That's very important. That's very important. Because unless some incredible, tyrannical, you call them, maybe dictators or false gods, anybody, and even prophets or disciples or apostles in Scripture could claim to have all three offices, they cannot be Messiah. I mean, if I hear one more person and I read one more oracle talking about Barack Obama being a Messiah, he doesn't, he doesn't have one of these offices. The only office he has is, is basically him and Biden are both Judas. That's about it. At best, or worse, Nero, Pharaoh, that knows not Joseph. 
That's about the best thing we can parallel them to. Call him a Messiah. First, we see Christ here on this earth come as a prophet. Okay? You've all read the stories. How many times was Christ able to look into the future and be able to predict what was going to happen? And it did. What did he tell Peter? Well, I think ten times you're going to deny me. I think two and a half times might be once. No. He said, you will deny me thrice. How many times did Peter deny him? Thrice. He said, my arrow would come. When his hour come, he didn't slough it off and try to push it under the rug and say, I'm not going to that cross. He said he was coming. He did it. Christ knew the hour, and he knew what he was getting into, and this is exactly as a prophet he could predict the future, and he could deliver the oracles of God. There's two more offices now he needs to fulfill. Who was the priest at the time that had just, least he brought him up, who had just been killed? And what was so incredible about that priest? John the Baptist. He was the last recorded Levitical priest in Scripture. There's never been a line of Levitical priests since John the Baptist. He was the one still having the sacrifices, honoring his father, Zacharias, who also was a Levitical priest. And now he dies, and it was needful for John the Baptist to die when he said that I could not even tie the latchet of Christ's shoes. It was now for Christ to step into his priestly garb and go to the cross. You remember when they put the robe on him? Remember, everything with Christ at this time is humble. It's lowly. I am lowly. And he says, I am the one that is lowly. I am the one that's humble. And even when he is dressed up like a king, he is mocked and he's beaten. They put a robe on him, a purple robe. They put a reed in his hand. And at that point, of course, that was the little tete-a-tete with Herod and, and Pilate, who their whole lives they hated each other. But when it came to mocking and spitting on Christ, they were real good buddies. And they put a robe on him. That actually, as much as that was mocked by them, that was a sign of what really was going to happen to Christ. What did it say on top of the cross? Anybody remember? Right. Right? And the Jews came back and they wanted to change that, didn't they? Pilate said, "Uh uh-uh. That was of Christ. No, I'm not. It stays. He is king. So right now, he's prophet. Where is he going to become the priest? I mean, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. He's always been the priest. But where is he going to instigate that office and he is going to show the effects of that office as a priest? What did the priest do in the Old Testament? Lisa? Yes, perfect. Perfect. That's what the priest's job was. They were to make the sacrifices. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins, right? So the unblemished Lamb of God, the ultimate Lamb of God, is now taking his priestly duties and he's making himself that animal that's going to be quartered, bled on the altar for our sins. Now, what happened to Isaac? I'm going away from the notes because this is too important to, to, to breeze over. It's in the notes, but I'm not doing it word for word. What happened to Isaac? There was an atonement for him, wasn't there? Wasn't there a substitute? That substitute was this precious little ram. There was no help for Christ. When God's Son goes to the cross, there was no ram in the thicket. His body is going. This is why we're supposed to remember him. Lisa. Right. 
Right. Right. And you know what's fascinating about that? That's a good point. If you realize many times you see sacrifices in the Old Testament, there were names for them. Remember when there were animals? There was a sacrifice for sins of contrition, sacrifice for sins of attrition. There was blood sacrifices for, it could be for the families, it could be for a, a covenant, for the peace. Or Jacob had them for a covenant with God. But you notice that when Isaac's body was being offered up as a sacrifice, they didn't really, it was no real title to that. I've always referred to it as an, as an altar of obedience to God for Abraham to prove his, his absolute 100% love for God and his subjection to the God that created him. And Abraham was ready to do it. And he had that knife up. Here's what's fascinating about that. That was another window, another prophecy. What happened to Isaac happened to Christ on the same mountain. Isn't that incredible? It's the same mountain, the very same place. And so you see how this is all building. Here now Christ, I have written down here, we observe prophet, priest, and king, and going into towns and preaching the fruition of the kingdom of heaven, things to come, he is speaking, Christ is speaking of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He will be lifted up and crucified, then glorified and ascending to heaven. This is all prophecy. Then once the preaching is accomplished, and then prayer, as in the garden, the priest would make sacrifices under the Lord God Almighty. The priest always prayed first. Look at the prayer that Christ had just given. He had given the prayer. And now it's time to offer up the sacrifice. This is where we are seeing his priestly duties. The atonement is about to commence, thus manifesting Christ's office of priest. He will be glorified, he will be exalted, and then you see the prophet on earth, you see the priest on the cross, then you see the king on the right hand of God. That's the problem a lot of evangelicals even today have a problem, is that transition from the resurrection to the right hand of God. A lot of... Still today, a lot of religions basically just reduce Christ to still being a good teacher. The guy that went to the cross. See, I didn't see the passion of the Christ, but I do know a lot about it. I do know that there was no real, real doctrinal talk about a resurrection. You know, basically a lot of these movies and I'll go right up to the cross and they just kind of leave it at that. A resurrection is much more than a celebration. In Christ, here we see now Judas is employed by the Sanhedrin. Christ takes disciples over the brook Cedron, which runs between Jerusalem and Mount Olives. I just want to say a little bit about that brook. That was the brook where when the sacrifices were given, that was the brook where when the, when the, uh, the golden calf was burned down, that's where all the blood went into that river. That's where the blood went. That, that was a bloody river. And that was like a real significant sign of what was about to happen to Christ. But here, in essence... Now Judas has been basically employed by the Sanhedrin. Christ takes the disciples over this brook. And in essence, he t Christ takes the field first to wage war. He had drawn on his faithful disciples away from the temple area and drew them up to the garden. Why? Did you hear what I just said? I want to repeat that so you can think about this for a minute if you didn't, ca didn't catch that. Why did he draw the disciples away from the center of the town where he was and get them up on the mountain? His love never stopped. His mercy for us never stops. 
And you can see it in minute detail. That's why it's so wonderful to read Scripture and to, and to reify yourself of that. He didn't want to cause a coup. There would have been riots in the streets. There would have been fighting because there were people that were following him. And he, if, if, he would have, if he would have allowed them to detain him, not up on the mountain where he had just prayed, but down in the city, there would have been riots. He didn't want anybody to get hurt. So even he controlled the hour he controlled the place where it was going to happen. He controlled the location and the destination before he gets nailed to the cross. And this is all happening. He takes him up. This was the Mount of Olives. And then Judas shows up. Stinking, rotten Judas. Stinking, rotten. What he did was so horrible. You know, the kiss that he gave Jesus was actually not some little peck on the cheek. I've been reading and studying for years about this. It was actually very intimate. It was a long kiss. It was to show, basically, almost as if I did love you. I do love you in a very worldly sense, but I ain't buying into this whole Jesus thing. You know? That's horrible. I mean, that, that, that's got to break your heart as a Christian. The betrayal was surely a part of the fruition of the prophecy, though. Right? Judas fell right into the hands of Satan, basically. But he ultimately fell into the providence of God. And that's where it really happens. Let's read some verses. Psalm 41.9, somebody grab that. And then Psalm 109, verses 6 through 8. Somebody grab that. Do that secondly, okay? Psalm 41, 9, and then Psalm 109, 6 through 8. Yea, my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Mm. That's tough. That's pretty tough. Who has Psalm 109? Thank you, Teresa. 6 through 8. Thank you, Matthew. Do you see that last phrase? Let another take his office. There you go. If you have any question about what that prophecy is from David in Psalm 109, let another take his office. And remember, you go to Acts chapter 1, and then there was, there was lots given, and Matthias, he was, he was there to take over that position. Do you see that? That was a direct prophecy, that he would be betrayed and given into the hands. Christ would be given into the hands. Now, I've got to finish up here. There's a lot more to go over. Maybe we'll do it again on the following week. But I just wanted to say this. I said we wanted to finish up with these three words. Now I know the big three words that are out there, and they're lovely, precious Christian words, almost to the point of just absolute, you know, they're everywhere during this time of year. He is risen. That's important. But look what he says in verse 5. Jesus saith unto him, the unto them, I am He. Now, if you take it in Old Hebrew, it actually is I am. There is really no He. If you do, if you do the uh, translation, it's really He says I am. <laughs> He's done that many times before. I know we've talked about it several times, but look at all the I am statements that Christ says, and this is the very last I am statement before He goes to the cross. Some of the other ones... I always love repeating them. 
I, I, just, I think it's wonderful to always repeat them because it just reminds you of how wonderful our Savior is. I'll read them. John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Verse 58, for Abraham was, I am. John 10.7, I am the door of the sheep. John 10.11, I am the good shepherd. John 11.25, still hangs over the, the grave of George Washington, and it better stay there in metal. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life, John 14.6. John 15.1, I am the true vine. And then you go back to Exodus 3.14, I am that I am. I am hath sent you. I am the God of your fathers. That connected Christ to deity. That connects him to God, and he said, I am he. I think there's, a, I think there's really good physical proof of that right there. Can you imagine a whole band of soldiers falling on their faces? He says, I am he. It says right here in verse 6. And soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went back. They didn't fall on their face. They fell on their backs. They went backward and fell to the ground. They fell. The whole band. <laughs> he says, I am he, and they all fell all at once. That would almost look comedic to see that happen in, in a sense. We see that these I am statements lead up to this last I am statement, which proves what John says in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. i got to go. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. That's why John had all these I am statements. He wanted us to believe, and he wrote this, that we would believe of a truth without any shadow of doubt that this was the Christ. This is the Christ of the living God, as Peter had claimed in Caesarea Philippi Confession. Jesus, the Son of God, and it's the Christ that actually a demon said, O thou holy one of God. Remember that in the book of Matthew? All right, well, let's finish there. And uh, yes, Brother Dave Heater, can you close us this morning? Thank you.